Hi, everybody. This is Lowell Levenger, Banana from the Young Bloods. My friends call me Banana. My dentist calls me Lowell. And you're listening to Talking Blues, and I'm happy to be a part of this. Now, I know that almost every interview you give, you explain how you got the name Banana. So I'm not going to do that to you. And I put it on my website, too, yes. with it right up there in front, with a circle that you can click on, and it's long and it's boring. <laughs> so if anybody's interested in finding out why Banana is called Banana, then you should go to LowellEvenger.com, and you can find the answer there. Correct? It will take you back to 1963 in Boston. <laughs> well, let's go back in time. I know that your mother was a concert pianist. And she taught yep. piano. And you Not learned... full-time or anything. Once in a while, she would appear with the Santa Rosa Symphony. Wow. So and Yeah, and she taught, taught piano lessons. And you picked up the piano at the age of four, or started to play the piano at the age of four. What did that... Amazing, because it was really heavy. Yeah. <laughs> but <Ba-dum-bum. laughs> what did the What did the piano music mean to you at that point? At the age of four, how did you come to play the piano? Well, you know, I heard it being played, and I heard music you know, on, on the radio and whatnot. And then, you know, when you can reach up, when you're tall enough to reach to be walking and, and can reach up and touch the keys, uh, bingo. You know, you, you push down on a key, and it makes a sound. And it's not like guitar, where when you first start, you push down on a fret and pluck the string, and it goes... <laughs> <laughs> It makes a really nice sound when you push down on a piano key. Um, and then, you know, you push, you just start fiddling around. And some keys, you know, if you push in order, they wow, that sounds cool. And other keys, if you push in order, that doesn't sound so good. Or you push a couple of keys together and whatnot. So I started, you know, just having fun doing it. And uh, then, you know, my mom said, oh, boy, you know, he's got talent. <laughs> and uh, started me uh, on lessons. Uh, fortunately, she didn't attempt to teach me herself. That would have been a disaster. Um, I'm sure. But so I went to another mean old lady who who taught me. And uh, <laughs> but my mom did did do interval training with with me, which was kind of fun. She'd just sit and say, you know, okay, here's this note, here's this note. What is it? You know, and I would would eventually learn. Oh, that's a third. Oh, that's a seventh. Oh, that's a fifth. You know. Um, so that was kind of the start of the theory. The, the piano lessons were just kind of playing pieces, you know, learning a piece and coming back and playing it and uh, then having your mistakes corrected. Uh, and I always just based? kind of faked it anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, with Chopin and Mozart and Bach and all that. Um, uh, but I was never, you know, I... Uh, I never got very good at reading music back in those days I, I, because I could fake it. <laughs> I'd get the teacher to, you know, here's the piece you're going to do. Okay, great. Play it for me. Yeah, she would play it. And I would basically just kind of remember it and go home and maybe kind of work it out a little bit, but not really be able to read it from the music and then go back to the lesson. She puts the music up and I kind of play the piece. And But it's because I remembered it, not because I studied the music, you know. I didn't really get very good at reading sheet music until I worked for Passport Designs 
creating a music software program that read sheet music or that turned MIDI files into sheet music. I had the basic knowledge, but I had. I do want to get to that. And I still, I can't sight read right now. I can, you know, I can read, uh, get a piece of music and figure it out and practice it and then play it, but I can't sight read very well at all. So is it a matter of memory or is it a matter of good hearing? Like, is it that you had really good ears to music or you would actually memorize what was going on? Yeah, that, that's, no, that's how I could fake it is because I had a good ear. Right, okay. Yeah. How does one get a good ear? Boy, I think maybe it, it, by uh, being born with the right genes is part of it. Um, but you can do ear training. I mean, just listening, listening to music and then, um, you know, figuring out what sounds good and what sounds bad. And then if you want to be a musician, trying figuring out how to duplicate that. But reading music really does come in handy. <laughs> and like, um, uh, you know, like this last gig I had with, with Little Stephen and the Disciples of Soul, there's no way that, uh, you know, a, like a, a just a rock league guitarist who taught themselves could, could ever cut that gig. You have to know music, you have to know theory, you have to know how to read charts and read music and follow lines and then play, you know, right. on the page. <laughs> And when it's when 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 you've got a little leeway, yeah, then you can stretch out a little bit. But basically, you're playing really meticulous, complex arrangements uh, that are a joy to play, that are really fun. You know, at that point, early on, what kind of music were you into, other than the classical that you were playing? Musically, what were you into? Uh, well, my par my mom uh, had a pretty good record collection, and a lot of it was um, Broadway musicals. Uh, which I was really into. And I was also really into Danny Kaye. And I was also really into Gilbert and Sullivan. Uh, and then, uh, and I was listening to the radio, you know, and in those days it was your hit parade, which was Rosemary Clooney and Frank Sinatra and like that. But every so often there would be a really good tune. And every so often it would kind of um, spill over into country. There would be Hank Williams or something. And, uh, you know, then by the time I was eight or nine, I had discovered the race stations over in Berkeley, Oakland, uh, KDIA. Actually, it was KWBR, I think, and then it changed to KDIA. But that led me into blues and country blues. They they actually played they played a lot of Jimmy Reed and John Lee Hooker and BB King and stuff like that. But they also played Lightning Hopkins and Josh White and whatnot, and that kind of got me interested in folk music. But yeah, by the time I was nine or 10, I was taking the Greyhound bus by myself from Santa Rosa over to Berkeley, walking across the line into Oakland to Music City Records to get whatever the record that I heard on the radio I couldn't live without. <laughs> and then would you automatically <laughs> learn how to play it? Was that the goal? Yeah, I would come home and, and work it out. Well, no, the goal was just joy, you know, of, of hearing it. I mean, but yeah, and then I would, try to figure out how to play it. So at, um, at that age, being still young, what did the blues mean to you, and why do you think it connected with you? Well, I think just be, probably because it's just such a primal thing that connects with human beings, and it's, you know, the words weren't that uh, meaningful to me. I loved, I liked the words, but I didn't <laughs> really understand what they meant at that point. Um, you know, B.B. King's 
definition of the blues to me is quintessential. He says the blues is complicated feelings expressed in simple terms. Mm. Uh, so yeah, when you're 10, 11, 12 years old, your feelings, yeah, your feelings are raging and pretty wild, but you, you don't really have <laughs> the complicated feelings that could result in, uh, in real, real blues. Kids blues are one thing, but real blues are another thing. You know? uh, and when would you have had the first exposure to blues live? Like a live performance of it. Well, it wouldn't exact wouldn't exactly have been blues. It was more like rock and roll. I always hung out with older kids, um, so when I was about eleven, I was hanging out, or twelve, I was hanging out with kids who could drive. And at the Russian River, there are these resorts in Monterio and uh, what was the other name of the other town? Anyway, the, these resorts that had music at night and dances, and Chuck Berry and Fats Domino and Little Richard and people like that actually played those places. Wow. Um, so uh, we would drive to those places. My friend, I think you had to be maybe 16 or something to get in. And that maybe they had, or maybe you had to be 18. I don't know. They had fake IDs or something. And they, they could get in. I couldn't, but I could go around to the back door and listen. Couldn't see it, but I could hear it live. So that would have been probably my first exposure to to live rhythm and blues. I remember going to, in uh, 61, my friend and I went to a Ray Charles concert at the Oakland Auditorium. Uh, and uh, the, the Oakland Auditorium holds about 5,000 people or something. We were the only white people there, my buddy and I. We were, <laughs> the, I, I was maybe, let's see, 61, 54. I was 15 or something, right? And uh, so incredible. You know, Ray Charles and the Raylats and his band was absolutely amazing. And uh, he was one of my idols. And when we, when the concert was over and we were walking back out the front door, I noticed that one of the marquees, you know, where the, the glass cases that they have the posters in yeah. for, for that night, it was slightly ajar. It was just ever, it wasn't quite closed. And um, so I said, uh, Bill, go get, go get the car and bring it around in front. And he did. And he brought the car around in front. And then as soon as he was right there at the bottom of the steps, I opened that thing, grabbed the poster and ran to the car. As soon as the kids started seeing me opening, they started yelling and shouting, hey, 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 look what he gave you know, And I just ran like hell and jumped in that car, and we took off, and I've still got the Wow. <laughs> you also got into buying, you, got, you wanted a Wurlitzer, did you not, because of Ray Charles? Well, it was, I always wanted a Wurlitzer just because of Ray Charles, but I had never gotten one and um i hadn't really played you know i'd gotten into the folk thing and and hearing earl scruggs for the first time had changed my life forever and then i'd gotten into bluegrass really heavy and uh but then had kind of back, gotten back into blues with this band the, the trolls in boston and uh but all that time you know i played banjo and dobro and guitar and stuff and uh then with the trolls i was playing electric guitar and uh 
And then one night, you know, Corbett comes into my room and says, hey, man, you got to come to New York. You got to join our band. It's really great. We got an agent. We got this great gig at Gertie's City, and we want you to come and join our band and play electric piano. Uh, okay. Um, that's cool, but, you know, I don't, I don't have an electric piano. That's okay, man. I talked to Briggs and Barry and the Remains. He's going to get a Farfisa, and he'll sell you his Wurlitzer. A Wurlitzer. Wow. Uh well, the trolls are basically going nowhere here really slowly. Okay. So I bought Briggs's Wurlitzer and moved to New York and got my first Wurlitzer. So when you started getting into the banjo and the guitar, how much piano playing were you doing? Zero. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it was yeah. like, was it like relearning the instrument or? Uh, it's kind of like riding a bike. Um, but... Uh, you know, I mean, I would fiddle around with the piano, but I didn't really have any gigs on piano uh, until the Youngbloods. You know, since Santa Rosa Day, early Santa Rosa days, uh, going plink, 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 plink with uh, doo-wop bands and stuff and, and trying to play jazz with Dan Hicks and friends. But, um, but yeah, basically all through that whole period from 62 to 65, I didn't touch the piano. Well, it's, it's amazing to me that, you know, you're still at a young age at this point, and uh, you've you've done you've gone through R and B, you've done some jazz, you've done some bluegrass. I mean, you went to a lot of different genres of music very early. What, what did you consider them different genres of music, or did you just consider it music? Well, it's all music, but yeah, they're definitely different genres of music. I mean, a, a uh, and different styles and and approaches to the instrument, especially the guitar. I mean. You know, bluegrass guitar is seems like it's simple and easy and whatnot and, and rudimentary, but boy, to do it right, it's a specific genre, and it takes getting into it and you know knowing the the heart and soul of it before it's going to sound sound right at all. So you know, regular rock guitarist or or even jazz guitarist. Uh, can't just walk into a bluegrass situation and not sound like shit. <laughs> Tell me about that moment you got into bluegrass and listening to Earl Scruggs. I, um, as uh, as a youth, I had deportment problems throughout the educational system. Of ever, got thrown out of every school I ever went to, and not for anything terrible, really just for speaking out against things, against despotism and things I thought were unfair, you know, uh, I could not keep my mouth shut. Anyway, and that didn't bode well with the educational system at the time, which was extremely despotic. They hired people who hated kids. Um, but where does that come from? Does that come from your parents to, to speak out against injustices or things you didn't think were fair? Is that how your parents were? No, I don't think it came from my parents. My my mom was a Democrat. My dad was a Republican. Uh, they argued a bit about that. Not a whole lot, though. Um, but I guess just hanging out with my friends and the people people I chose to hang out with and the stuff I chose to read and then expose myself to. And I guess it just, you know, you. I think you're maybe born with a general nature. Some people are people and they're going to be who they are. And some people just can't keep their mouth shut. <laughs> and that's me. Right. That was me. Uh, 
anyway, so I got kicked out of uh, Santa Rosa High School uh, in my sophomore year. And uh, my parents said that there was no school in the whole district that would take me. And thus, I had to be sent off to private school. Now, I've never actually checked on that. At the time, I believed them. But looking back on it, they started doing a lot of traveling as soon as they got rid of me. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so, all right, got to go to private school. That's a drag. And the private school that was selected was Robert Louis Stevenson School for Boys in Pebble Beach, California, which we affectionately called Bob Louie. <laughs> so uh, I went there in my junior year, and True to Form was kicked out. But... Uh, and they, t but my dad went uh, and had a meeting with the headmaster, who was a real asshole, <laughs> and um, trying to persuade them to let me come back just for my senior year and graduate. And the uh, headmaster took a poll of all my teachers, all of whom except one said, absolutely not. I certainly don't want him back. Uh, <laughs> but Sybil Fernley, who was an 80 years old British English literature teacher, and I had also hit it off. And she said, oh, no, Lowell shows much promise. And uh, he's got, you know, pl plenty of talent and probably a good life. Hey, we should, we should take him back. So I think just between that and possibly maybe a donation from my dad, uh, I got back in for my senior year. Uh, but they put me in the senior dorm in the room that was right next to the dorm master's apartment so that the dorm master would be able to keep a close eye on me. Uh, well, that year they hired uh, for the dorm master an American history teacher, a guy named David Litton, who was fresh out of Harvard and who was a big folk music fan and who was also an a, uh, enemy of despotism and unfairness and whatnot. He, he didn't like that kind of stuff either. And, Robert, and Bob Louie was a, a haven for despotism. Uh, and, you know, I <laughs> was my usual self. Anyway, so we hit it off, <laughs> the two of us. It, it didn't work out the way they had planned. We got to be friends. And I had this, you know, great record collection, and, and uh, I could play guitar. And um, he was a big, a huge folk music fan, and... Uh, he said to me, he also taught American history, not just out of the, you know, shit-ass right-wing textbooks that were supplied, but he actually told what, what happened. It was, he was a really, really cool guy. Uh, and I could get into a lot more, but I'll just try to answer the question. So, um, so he says, I have these records at home I think you'd really like. It's, it's banjo music. Well, I was too dumb at the time to have gotten realized how great Dixieland is and I didn't like Dixieland and although I thought Pete Seeger was cool you know banjo music I knew what banjo music was and I said no thanks I'm not interested in banjo music and he said no I think you'd really like it it's this, this group is called Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs I said Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs this sound now it's sounding like a vaudeville second avenue shtick comedy routine <laughs> or something you know please I'm not interested he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get him. So he got his parents to send Foggy Mountain Jamboree and uh, Foggy Mountain Breakdown. No, Foggy Mountain. 
One's called Jamboree, and the other's called, wow, boy, can I not remember It's Breakdown, one. isn't it? And one's, all, one's all instrumentals, and the other is vocals and instrumentals. I think it is Foggy right. Mountain Breakdown. Yeah, I think it is. Um, it's orange. I've, it's in the other room there. <laughs> I could go look. And anyway, so, okay, so I put the record on the turntable. I put the tonar needle down on the record, and in 10 seconds, my whole life changed. All I wanted to do was make that sound get a banjo and make that sound that Earl Scruggs was making. I couldn't believe it. it yeah. It just what was it? Was, totally... it? was it the speed? Was it the tone? Was it? No, not the speed. It's, it's the, it's the heart and soul, you know, but the tone and the style is just so different from anything you've ever heard in your life, you know, and it rolls and moves, you know, it uh, propels the, the whole thing. So incredibly, Anyway, so I, uh, you know, my parents were going to get me, I was, the plan was to go to Boston University. That's the other thing David Litton did for me. He said, go to BU. I wanted to be an actor. And he said, go to BU. BU has a great theater department. And also, you know, I went to Harvard. I, I would be on the subway uh, coming back from Boston to Cambridge, and there would be three gorgeous BU girls sitting across from me and they would look over at me and then they would turn to each other and snicker and say, typical Harvard. He says, go to BU. <laughs> so I applied to BU and I was accepted and, uh, and then I got thrown out of school again. <laughs> and the reason I got thrown out of school right at the end of the senior year at Bob Louie was because First of all, they had these schools have a, a system of demerits. You ever heard of demerits? You know, when you do something bad, you get demerits. Right. right. And you you rack up demerits. You know, as you do more and more uh, things that are against the rules. Uh, at Bob Louie, they called them termites. Isn't that cute? <laughs> um, you know, Bob Louie. You every morning you had to get up and you had to be wearing your Bob Louie blazer and your Bob Louie tie, and you had to go out to the big circle around the flag, which has numbers on it, and you had to stand on your number for the pledge to the flag. And a person goes around, and if there's a number that's not covered, you're in trouble. Whoever's number that is is in trouble. Right. Um, you, you also had to wear your Bob Louie tie and your Bob Louie blazer to dinner every night. In the, in the dining hall. And uh, one night after the headmaster had called me and my cohorts, there were about half a dozen of us into his office to ran just, you know, Remus new assholes for whatever we had done. Uh, and he, he kept stressing that our big problem was that we had a negative attitude and that we had to reverse that. We had to reverse our negative attitude and we had to develop a positive attitude and get rid of this negative attitude. Well, that night I talked all of us into wearing our blazers inside out to dinner. <laughs> negative, you want negative attitude? Yeah. <laughs> why why so, do you think, um, I mean, sorry, go ahead. What was wrong with me? I don't know, you know, I, and, uh, <laughs> I, I behave myself now. I'm a nice guy. I, you know, I, I haven't gotten kicked out of the band, any band. <laughs> Peter Walsh has a great song called They Kicked Me Out of the Band. <laughs> Just when things were going so grand. <laughs> I but can't I understand. If, they kicked me out of the band. You, 
if you got kicked out of all your schools or always got in trouble, how, what, how did that make you feel? Or did you, were you, I mean, obviously you're, you're aware of this, but how did it affect you that whenever you went to school, you knew the ending was going, not going to be well? Well, it wasn't fair. You know, I was in the right, they were in the wrong. <laughs> I guess it's kind of, this is the first time I've actually maybe had an inkling of the insight into Trump. It was all a witch hunt. It was a hoax. <laughs> now I get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so David Litton had been put in charge of the stables. Bob Louie was a horsey school also. Right. And... I had racked up so many termites. I mean, I wasn't allowed to go into Carmel on weekends like the rest of the guys. I even I wasn't even allowed to go home, on, you know, on holidays and whatnot. Uh, I stayed. I was restricted to campus, and every weekend I was sent to the stables to shovel shit and clean the stables. Well, David Litton was put in charge of the stables, and. Uh, so we worked it out uh, that uh, every weekend I would come, you know, I would come to the stables. He would outline, you know, what what he wanted done, what needed to be done and whatnot. He would leave me in charge. I would just kind of sit around and illegally smoke uh, <laughs> while he and his girlfriend would each take horses and go out uh, into the woods. I have no idea what they did out there, but but. I'm, I guess they probably had fun. Uh, so uh, one day towards the end of the year, I guess his horse must have bucked or something and he fell off his horse and he broke his leg. I think maybe broke his femur or something. That was the last time I ever saw him. Wow. Uh, I was, you know, thrown out of school. Uh, I never saw him again. Nobody ever told me, you know, where he was or anything. Again, my dad visited, maybe another donation. I don't know. I wasn't allowed to continue school. I wasn't allowed. This was like two weeks before graduation. I wasn't allowed to participate in graduation, but they did fucking give me my diploma and let me go to BU. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> but so I owe, I owe David Litton everything. If I hadn't have gone to BU, I wouldn't have, you know, dropped out of BU. I wouldn't have gone to Cambridge. I wouldn't have gotten into the middle of the folk scare there. I wouldn't have met Jesse and Jerry. I wouldn't have been in the Youngbloods when Stephen wouldn't have been a Youngbloods fan. I wouldn't have ever been in the Disciples of Soul. It's all due to David Litton, who I have tried so hard to find. He would pro He's probably maybe three or four years older than me. Who knows if he's still around or not. And I have, you know, searched every place I can think of. And I can't, have not been able to locate him. Wow. Bob Louis says he never, Bob Louis says he never existed. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you want to become an actor back then? I loved uh, acting. I loved comedic acting. I, I loved the Marx Brothers and Bob Hope and Jack Denny and uh, uh, Milton Berle and all those guys. I read all their biographies. I memorized some of their routines. Danny Kaye knew all his records. And uh, yeah, that's just, that's just what I wanted to do. And I went to BU to the School of Finding, uh, Fine and Applied Arts Theater Division to major in acting. And then <laughs> I discovered music. I met, so, 
the School of Fine and Applied Arts is kind of removed from the rest of the campus and you have to walk down Commonwealth Avenue and cross the Mass Avenue Bridge to get to it. And they figure anyone, any artist who can cross the Mass Avenue Bridge doesn't have to take PE. <laughs> so on, on the top floor are the artists because that's where the light is and that's where the painters and the sculptors and whatnot, that's that division. And then on the first floor is the theater division where the actors and directors and people studying drama are. And then down in the basement are, guess who? The music department. <laughs> and, uh, but so consequently, I made friends with, with folks in the music department. They also had uh, down their rooms, little, very small rooms, in which, which were completely filled by a pipe organ. I mean, absolutely, the pipes completely filled the room and the keyboard was in the middle of the room. And you could go down there uh, and if nobody was using a room, you could just go in there and play the pipe organ and pretend like you were, you know, Bach in church or something. It was incredible. But anyway, so I made friends with folks down there and, and really good friends with a French horn player named Michael Kane, uh, who also played bass. And then another guy in the theater department, Peter Golden, and I became great friends. He played guitar. I played banjo. And we decided to, and we were both into the New Lost City Ramblers and Charlie Poole and Gus Cannon and all that stuff. And uh, we decided to form the string band, Banana and the Bunch, old time music with appeal. And uh, we started playing, you know, practicing and playing gigs, we, we would go to the, the coffee houses around Cambridge and Boston and the North Shore and whatnot. Um, we traveled in a Volkswagen Bug with uh, guitar, mandolin, banjo, and bass. And uh, we weren't very good at, at in-between tune patter, you know, what to say in between songs. So Peter found, found this huge volume, it weighed about 12 pounds the 1915 Compendium of Medical Knowledge. And in between tunes, he would just flip to a disease and describe it. But it didn't go over really well. And the whole, well, the, the name of the group was Harmon and Banana and the Bunch, Old Time Music with Appeal. And again, you can see the genesis of that when you go to the website. But right. the whole, the Harmon and thing, people didn't get it at all. It was a difficult name. It was an awkward name. And, we knew that it was all because of the Harmon N part. People would say, you know, well, what does the N stand for? We would say, well, nothing. Uh, and so we finally decided to drop the Harmon N and just become Banana and the Bunch, old-time music with appeal, figuring that would probably be the key to our success. No. So at this point, are you thinking that you're going to be a musician that is going to be your No, career? I want to be an actor and... and um, and the, and then we transitioned. Then the we played the club forty seven, and I was kind. I kind of got in with the club forty seven, and the the woman who booked it and managed it. And uh, I was running hoots there on Sunday afternoons, doing the hoots. And then our group was playing there, and uh, and then the Love and Spoonful came through. Butterfield Blues Band came through and played the club forty seven. Love and Spoonful came through. Um, the Rolling Stones came out and I knew all the original versions of the stuff that they were copying, except they weren't really copying it. In my opinion, they were kind of murdering it. <laughs> now I know better, but, but 
I was like, what? why are they doing it like that? I mean, it's so good, you know, the original way. Anyway, I, thought, I can do this, I thought. <laughs> so we transitioned from being a uh, string band to being a rock and roll band or a, a rhythm and blues band. And everyone except Michael got replaced with other musicians, uh, a drummer and a, and a lead singer. And we started playing with Club 47 as, as the Trolls. And then that, you know, led to playing gigs now, not not in coffee houses, in bars, some of them run by really disreputable and scary people. But nevertheless, we started working and we were getting, you know, two, three, four gigs a week. And uh, it was really hard to keep up with the college thing and the music thing. But it was really cool playing gigs, you know, uh, and I loved it. So I went to the Dean of Men uh, Muzan Law, who was this little twit who had taken over that year. And I explained the situation. You know, I dearly, really loved the theater. I absolutely wanted to be an actor, but I had this band and we were playing these gigs and, uh, you know, helping to support myself by it. And uh, it was, you know, another art. And I, so could I go part time instead of full time? Well, Lowell. <laughs> You need to devote 110% of your energy and heart to the theater or you'll never make it. There's no room for anything else. So, no, you must continue to go full-time. Well, I had been behaving myself really well. I hadn't gotten into any trouble in college, but, boy, all those old influences just rose right up in me and my middle finger rose right up. And... uh <laughs> I got up and walked out of the room, and I've been a professional musician ever since. Not an actor. I'd love to get in back. I could do character acting now that I'm old and a character. I, I would love to get into that. <laughs> but but that that those things have not like acting has never come your way in that all this time. Oh yeah, a I did a little things. bit of community. Yeah, I did, did some community theater theater here in Point Reyes 30, 30, 40 years ago or something, but. No, and it would be fun. And again, you know, now I'm a character. I got, nobody looks like me. <laughs> <laughs> so you decide, then you decide to pursue music. Did you know what you were getting yourself into? Uh, yeah, I think so. You know, I, I, I told my parents, okay, well, I'm dropping, we, you know, got this band and we're doing music and we're playing gigs and making some money and I'm going to uh, stop, drop out of school because they won't let me go part-time. And they said, no, 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 bad, bad decision. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, they could kind of tell, <laughs> you know, saying bad decision wasn't going to change my mind at all. They said, okay, well, here's the deal. You know, we've been paying for your rent. We've been sending you a monthly stipend, monthly allowance to live on. If you want to stop your education and just try to support yourself, great, go ahead, but you're not getting any more support from us. And I said, wow, okay, great, thank you, thank you so much, that's fabulous. And that was that. Wow. And then how difficult was it to get into music full-time? I mean, it sounds like things just happened, and happened very yeah, quickly. Yeah, and, and like I say, it was the height of the, you know, uh, the folk scare there in Cambridge, music was everywhere. Uh, 
you know, and time, I mean, it seems, you know, now looking back on it, it seems like, oh, it was such a long time that I did this and I did that. But really, it was only, you know, a few years, the whole period of uh, 62 to 65, right? In, in 65, I left and went to New York to join the Youngbloods, which weren't even the Youngbloods yet. But um, so, yeah, it was a relatively short, a peri- short period of time that, that all that occurred and then you know and true i mean no we weren't none of it was successful we we uh you know subsisted on uh chili mac and uh discovered that you know in mackerel canned mackerel is perfectly good even <laughs> if it is in the pet food aisle it's perfectly good stuff you know it's not <laughs> but so yeah we were we were poor and you know um musicians but we had a great time we had a great apartment all the musicians who came through hung out there and uh yeah it was great and then you know moving to new york now all of a sudden oh boy you know you've got you're with the young bloods you've got new york gigs you've got a manager and then you got a booking agency then you got a record contract uh so yeah well, what did i record no. that I was, I was i guess i was just incredibly lucky through my whole career it's, i've i've been really lucky but also you know i practiced and i'm a, i'm a uh, a quick study and pretty easy to get along with and i don't lie and i've never betrayed anyone or you know uh so all of that i think helps <laughs> tell me about the young bloods and and releasing the album um and i i presume that it it got critical reviews and and positive critical reviews you Get Together came out in 67, but wasn't really a hit until 69, I believe. Right. Um, and and the Christian Fellowship Conference uh, adopted it for their uh, background for their ads. So when you first released it, did you think that it had potential? No, it was just another song on the album. It was a great song, but, you know, what we thought Grizzly Bear had potential. Right. Which it did. Grizzly Bear became a hit before Get Together did. It was kind of localized uh, a lot in the Midwest. It was number one in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, but and it and it was you know a bit of a hit on the East Coast too. I don't think it was quite a bit quite as big on the West Coast, but it you know it made the charts, and we thought that was you know going to be the the one. But and we you know we recognized that Get Together was a great song, but we didn't recognize how profound it really was and how it had the potential to affect so many people so profoundly. And still. Still. Like, I mean, it's timeless. I mean, you know, I, you, yeah. Yeah, if you go, you go to, uh, you've probably seen the video at my website that we put together. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's gotten like a million views or something. Uh, it, yeah, and it's, it's a shame that it's so just as pertinent today as it was back then, but it certainly is. And it has, you know, I've had folks come up to me, Vietnam vets come up to me and say, you know, I don't think I would have made it through that ordeal if I hadn't had that song. Wow. I think that's the only thing that really pulled me through. I've had, you know, a few people come up to me and say stuff or the same kind of meanings, similar stuff as that. Uh, yeah, that's it's, amazing. It's an amazing, amazing song, and it's incredible that our version, you know, was the one, and it still is the one that that clicked. Mm-hmm. But it, to me, it seems so but, timeless. Like I hear it, and it still sounds so great. 
good. We all we all done good. <laughs> we made a good arrangement. <laughs> Dino wrote a great song. We made a great arrangement, and we didn't fuck it up. <laughs> when the when the band ended, um, music was still the thing that you were going to pursue, correct? I know you've done other things, but when that when the band ended, how how did you feel about things? Well, it was. It was kind of time. Jesse really wanted to go out on his own and do his own thing. And uh, so, yeah, it, it, it was time for it to end. And then I just went on with Banana and the Bunch. You know, I started Banana and the Bunch. It was a five-piece band, sort of R&B, country blues uh, band. And we played, you know, all around Marin, Sonoma counties and did a couple of Northwest tours and whatnot. And... Uh, yeah, I was. I still just wanted to keep playing, and I did. And then I discovered hang gliding, which again, the first time I saw hang uh, hang glider take off from the top of the two hundred foot sand dune at Dillon Beach, it was a very similar thing to the first time I put that tone arm down on the Earl Scruggs record. Uh, <laughs> so you I, you knew you wanted to do that, that immediately. That's all I wanted to do. I became completely obsessed, and that's that's all I wanted. I'd, I'd had dreams of flying ever since I was a little kid. Uh, and this, there, there it was. I mean, yeah, you had this kite, but other than that, it was the closest thing. I, I, had, I already had a sailplane license, a, a glider pilot's license, and loved doing that. But this was, you know, one great big, huge step closer to the real thing. Now, now there's an even huger step closer to the real thing, which I'm very lucky. I'm way too old to do, or I'd probably kill myself. And it's wing wing suits. Have you seen those? Oh yeah, These yeah, no, yeah. crazy Norwegians. Yeah. Ah, my God. <laughs> Except you know, a hang glider is mellow. You're flying along at 20 miles an hour, 25 miles an hour, or something. In order to keep the lift in a wingsuit, you have to be going like 70 miles an hour. It's absolutely nuts. <laughs> yeah, it is crazy. So. But yeah, so I saw that I got obsessed, and and I, uh, you know, started. We, I, I again had a buddy, and the two of us kind of got obsessed together. The people who were teaching weren't teachers; they were hang glider manufacturers, and their method of trying to correct someone was to shout the instruction louder. Uh, <laughs> they, really, they really didn't have any teaching technique. We convinced them to uh, let us take over the school using their gliders and they would just make the gliders and we would you know then promote the gliders and help sell them and we would be able to keep the gliders during the week <laughs> so yeah we became you know pretty good uh, really good pilots and started our hang gliding school and then started a hang gliding shop where we sold gliders and repaired them and accessories and then gave lessons on the weekends but i would get up the lessons would be out at dillon beach which is about a hour and a half drive from Inverness, beautiful drive down Tomales Bay to the mouth of the bay. And there's this beautiful big old sand dune with hundreds of yards of sand stretching out in front of it. It's like God made it for a hang gliding site, faces <laughs> the prevailing winds. And uh, But you got to go early in the morning before the wind picks up because your students don't know how to fly and you're trying to get them used to handling the gliders and you know running with them and just getting off the ground and back again. You got to learn to land before you learn to take off. Right. Uh, anyway, so I would get up real early in the morning, get out there, get all the, you know, stack the gliders on top of the car, get out there, get them all set up, get the waiver forms all ready to sign and all that stuff and be ready to go when the students arrived at 830. 
teach hang gliding lessons till the wind came up, which would be around one in the afternoon, one thirty in the afternoon, pack up all the crap, take it back to Inverness, unload it into the garage, reload with the electric piano and the amps and the guitars and the mics and all that stuff, and then drive to whatever Napa or the Santa Cruz mountains or something and play a gig until two in the morning, <laughs> drive home two hours, sleep for two and a half hours, get up the next morning, go back to the hill and teach another group of students. And I did that every weekend. Wow. For years. <laughs> but I never stopped playing gigs. And then I worked for this software company for another 10 years. Okay, so how did that happen? Music software. Well, I got, a, I got interested in synthesizers. And I thought, wow, if I just get a synthesizer, I can play harmonica, I can play fiddle, I can play whatever. You know, it'll sound like anything. Which, you know, right. wasn't quite true. But, but they were really cool anyway. And... Uh, <laughs> And I'd also been uh, gotten interested in computers. I didn't have one, but I'd started reading Byte magazine, which to a layman, you start reading it, you understand about 4% of what you're trying to read. But nevertheless, slowly you're gaining a bit of an insight into this world, you know. Uh, anyway, and then I got this synthesizer. You take the lid off the synthesizer. Wait a minute, this is, this is just a computer, you know, with a keyboard attached. So, uh, right. meanwhile, the, I had made friends with the guy at the synthesizer repair place, keyboard repair place, who was also into computers. And he had a friend over in the East Bay who was a super computer guru guy, really knew his shit. And uh, so we put together, he, this guy had found a place in Taiwan that sold uh, renegade, you know, outlaw bare bones motherboards for Apple IIs. Just, just the motherboard, but completely wired, but not chipped out or anything. So we ordered three of those, and this guy knew all the right chips and caps and everything to buy for it and how to put them in. And he also had an Apple II, and he also had an EEPROM burner. So we slowly but surely, well, they, the two of them, I mostly just went for coffee and did really simple grunt work, uh, <laughs> put three motherboards together, and then you take the... ROM out of the Apple and you put it in the EEPROM burner and you burn yourself three EEPROMs and you stick them in the ROM slot of the motherboard and you hook up the powerful apply and the monitor and say a little prayer and turn it on and the screen says Apple II. <laughs> so we had built these, you know, pirated renegade Apple II computers and now I had a computer and I had a synthesizer. And uh, obviously, you wanted to figure out a way to get the computer to talk to the synthesizer. And me and Phil, the the uh, the synth repair guy friend, uh, cobbled together a librarian that could uh, download the sounds from your that you had programmed in your Poly Six or whatever, uh, and save them. And then you could make new sounds and save those. And then you could reload them back into the synthesizer from the computer. You saved them on a floppy disk. So that was really cool. And this was way before MIDI. Anyway, and then so Passport uh, Designs put out this program that ran on an Apple II that was a four-track sequencer, like a four-track multi-track recorder. Right. And uh, I bought it and started using it. And it was full of bugs. And I started reporting the bugs to Passport. And also saying, you know, it seems to me, yeah, this is four track, but we've got eight bit computers here and wouldn't be that complicated 
to make it 8-track, are, are you guys just doing this because you want to sell a new version of 8-track that you could have put out in the first place? You know, or what? anyway. So they finally called me and said, listen, you think you're such hot shit. Why don't you come down here and apply for a job? <laughs> and this, this is in Half Moon Bay. This is like a three-hour commute, right? Wow. So I went down there, and the boss, Dave Kusek, was this really cool guy, and he had also had been a Youngbloods fan. And uh, I interviewed with him, and I interviewed with the vice president and a couple of the other guys. And they hired me to be basically the tester and the demo guy. Oh, at the interview, they said, if we were to give you any all the synthesizers you need, could you use our software, you know, the new beta 16-track version, to make a, fi- a MIDI file that when played back would sound just like the hit record, just like the track on the hit record. I said, sure, piece of cake. They said, okay, you're hired. Uh, of course, I'd never done anything like this in my life before. <laughs> but, uh, but it wasn't that hard. You start with the high, you, you know, you listen real carefully and you start with the hi-hat. You get that down and then you get the snare drum. Then you get the bass drum. Then you get the rest of the kit. Then you get the bass. Then you get, you know, you just do it one, one thing at a time, listening real carefully. And then you got to program the sounds to make it sound like whatever it is. And pretty soon, you know, you, you got it pretty well. So I would go to the NAMM shows and demo this stuff. We would be, you know, demoing raw pre-beta versions of the software that had all these cool features. But if you did the wrong thing, the whole thing would blow up. There would be, uh, you know, a lot of Japanese customers coming to the booth to look at the software. And, you know, they're, they're looking for me. They say, oh, are you Are you Lowell? Um, and uh, anyway, and then they would be watching and one of them would start to, to reach his hand out. Don't touch that! You know? <laughs> but yeah, so then, you know, I was running the beta test department and then they put me in charge of uh, doing the manuals, putting the user manuals together. And I was finding bugs and kind of suggesting ways to fix them. And eventually they put me in charge of the whole engineering development department and I had six programmers working for me and the beta testing department working for me and the uh, documentation department working for me and uh, nobody ever suspected that I didn't have some sort of college degree you know (laughs) (laughs) and you're still playing music during this time yeah doing gigs every week commuting Commuting to Half Moon Bay, and then also at the same time, I had a gig at this the first computer music software store, uh, maybe anywhere. It was in San Francisco. It was called Computers and Music. And I worked uh, there three days a week, just in sales and, you know, uh, and also giving me a chance to get familiar with a whole lot of music software and synthesizers and keyboard and stuff. And then... Uh, I worked there three days a week, and then I went to half... That was in San Francisco in Daly City, and then down to Half Moon Bay four days a week, commuting from Inverness. Um, <laughs> musically, did that change then, you at all? Uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, it gave me a pretty solid idea of what a work ethic is, I guess. Uh, <laughs> you know, I had a, I had kids. I had, you know, four or five kids, and... and uh, had to support the family, right? And but eventually it got to be too much, and I just stopped doing the computer and the the computers and music gig, and just went to Half Moon Bay five days a week. And then over the years, I eventually weaned them to where I only had to go down there three days a week, uh, and I would go down there for meetings. 
I could get, I could really get a lot more accomplished at home. And I'd go down there for meetings and I'd say, well, here's what I would be accomplishing if I weren't sitting here at this meeting. You know? uh, <laughs> but I wonder, here's my report. Here's my report. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder, I mean, you're known for your acoustic instruments. Um, I know you play electric instruments as well, but I mean, I wonder if the synthesizer and that interface with computers and synthesizers, if that had any influence on you musically. Like if you're, the music that you played changed at all because oh, of yeah. that experience. I, I, would, I would stay up at night programming. The, the, when I got the DX7, I couldn't believe it. It was amazing. And I would stay up, you know, all into the wee hours of the night programming that DX7 every night. It was it was sort of like, you know, the same, the blue girl, the banjo, the the uh, hang gliding. My life has kind of been a series of obsessions. I just got obsessed with this whole synthesizer and programming sounds and using computer programs to record them. And then the, the whole encore thing of taking a MIDI file or a live MIDI performance and transforming it into actual proper sheet music that I'm really proud of that. I was on the, helped the design development team for that. And that was kind of the groundbreaking thing. Um, uh, what was the other one for the PC? Uh, what was it called? I forget. Anyway, but they were, they were, it was the thing that led to Sibelius, you know, right. that Sibelius, Sibelius owes a lot to Encore. So, you decide that you're going to stop that. You continue your music. Somehow you went. You end up at the Natadan Blues Festival, which is why I'm in touch with you through through them, I guess. But tell yeah. me about how that happened. Well, I kind of decided in about I don't know 2002 or something that maybe I that maybe I wanted to be a folk singer when I grew up, after all, <laughs> and just go out and because I knew you know a thousand songs. And I love to sing them. And, I, and uh, so, yeah, just go out. And it's so easy, you know, also, if just to no band, no road manager, no crew, no nothing. You, know, you just go out there with your guitar. And, uh, and at the same time, I had fallen in love with the tenor guitar. Grisman, my buddy Dog, had, had introduced me to it. And uh, it had really hit it off with me. I guess kind of another little obsession there. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, so I decided, okay, yeah, I, I think maybe I want to be a folk singer when I grow up and uh, fall in love with the tenor guitar. And uh, if you want to go accompany yourself singing songs. Oh, and also then I, I, I realized, well, uh, if I want to do that, what if I were to start practicing singing the same way I practice an instrument? And so I tried that and I'll be damned if I didn't become a much better singer. It worked. It's like can you explain that a little uh, more? Well, you just put time in singing songs and recording yourself and trying to sing in tune and trying to develop, develop some character to your voice. I think I have a, uh, uh, I think my voice is my own now. I don't think I sound like anybody else. Right. Uh, and my style is my own too, be, partially because I realize, okay, I love the tenor guitar, uh, but if I want to go out on my own and sing songs for people, I got to be able to go boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick. That's the main thing you got to be able to do, right? Right. Uh, okay, well, if the tenor guitar is tuned in fifths, unlike a regular guitar that's tuned in fourths, and it has four strings, the bottom one is C, it goes C, G, D, A. So if you're in the key of C, great, you can go C, chick, 
boom, chick, boom, chick. Great. The key of G, however, you know, your G string, you can't go boom, chick. You have to go chick, boom, sort of, because you've got the fifth as your lowest note. The tonic is your next note up. So that doesn't work that great. And God forbid the key of A, your lowest note is now a major third. Uh, so that's not, don't work that great either. So I thought, well, what if you just added one more string, another fifth down to F? Then you would have access, you know, two frets up is a G. <laughs> two frets up in there is an A. So, you, you know, in, and the canon, the folk country bluegrass blues canon is written in G and D and C and A, a little bit B flat, E. But, you know, a lot of it is requires a low note <laughs> of G or A or B flat or something. Anyway, so yeah, I thought that would be cool. Just add, a, add, an, add another string down. So I tried it. I took a perfectly good tenor guitar and threw the neck away and had my luthier build me a five-string neck. I also shortened the scale length. The tenor guitar, a regular guitar has anywhere from... 24 and a half to a 26 inch scale length a tenor guitar has a 23 inch scale length i decided to go with a 21 inch scale length i have very very small hands so i had him build a a five string neck with a 21 inch scale length on this nice old guitar tenor guitar martin and uh it worked it was great so i started learning how to play it and uh i've been learning how to play it for the last whatever 15 years or something now and that also gives me an instrumental voice that is unique. It, mm-hmm. it can be, the instrument can be like a guitar. It can be banjoistic. It can be mandolinistic. Uh, and you've got this really wide spread uh, that you can play these really wide chords. Uh, you know, so a guitar player hears, hears me playing without seeing what I'm playing. And after a little bit, it's like, wait a second. Uh, how's he doing that? You know? <laughs> Whereas some other things that are real easy to do on a guitar tuned in fourths are harder to do tuned in fifths because you've got longer stretches and you kind of have to hop around a little bit. But all in all, I really like it. And I, pra- I practically, my hand has practically forgotten how to play six string guitar now. I guess it's a different discipline, right? Or completely different. Mm-hmm. But it's really fun, and I really, I really like the sound. And I'm, I've been sure now for years that any minute everybody's going to jump on the bandwagon, and uh, start doing it. So I made these. I started making these records. I started going to the the folk alliance uh, things, conferences, and whatnot, and making CDs of just me singing. You know, with a studio band in back of me, but stuff that I was going to sing in my solo act too. And one of them was mostly blues called down to the roots and ed heard that and said wow look he's doing blues let's have him come to the blues festival oh boy i can get him on into the blues festival yay wahoo and uh wrote me and said how would you like to come to the notodon blues festival you know and uh <laughs> i said well you know normally i wouldn't but for a sweet talker like you no i accepted instantly <laughs> and uh the rest is history. I just, I hit it off with everybody there. They said, oh, and we, uh, you know, we're partially state sponsored and they like uh, to have cooperation uh, between uh, and interaction between Norwegian musicians and American musicians. So how would it be if we put together a band 
for you to play with. And I said, well, you know, if they're all good, it, it sounds pretty good. We'll send you YouTube videos of, of who they are. And they got Knut uh, Hem, who was the drummer in this band and an uh, incredible musician. And I didn't realize until we'd been together for over a week and a half that he's also an amazing dobro player. Hmm. But uh, he put together this band and uh, they are all just the cream of the crop, virtuoso musicians. They all have incredible hearts and souls. They're all incredible human beings. We have become, I now have a Norwegian family. They, their wives are incredible that my, Jane has hit it off with all of them. Uh, you know, we're, we're really close friends. We play together. we we'll all have a ball playing together. They love my stuff. I love the way they play. Uh, so yeah, it worked out amazingly. And Stephen was there. He's, he's one of the big sponsors of that festival, has been for, for a long time. The Little Stephen School of Blues is, is based there and teaches kids how to play the blues, lets, helps them in learning how to record and perform and all that stuff. And I'm now a part of that as well. I've sort of become a mascot <laughs> of the <laughs> festival. They, they gave me a star on their Walk of Fame last year. Wow. Uh, Unbelievable. So, uh, so yeah, Stephen was there. Stephen was an old Youngblood fan, and uh, we hit it off. And I showed him the guitar and said, I'm sure, you know, you're going to want to try that. And he said, you belong in an asylum. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, so the next year, you know, I had, I had, it had been so great. You know, I'd made all these friends. I'd gotten this band together. We'd worked up all these songs that we played really well. I really wanted to go back, but obviously they're not going to hire the same guy twice in a row to be one of the headliners. Right. But I was willing to go back and play the folk blues stage or the other the bars along the main drag, anything, just to get back there. And uh, I saw that the headliners for 2017 were Buddy Guy and Little Stephen and the Disciples of Soul. Well, I, uh, using one of my mantras that uh, I got from Roy Bookbinder, I don't know if you know who Roy Bookbinder is. Yep, yep. Uh, you could Google him. He's a, he, he's a blues guy, a consummate blues guy, country mm -hmm. blues guy. And he, was, he travels around with his wife uh, all over the country playing gigs. And he was staying at my house. We were having dinner. He lives in Florida. He stays and hangs in Florida for the winter, three months a year. And then the rest of the time, he just tours around all over the place. And uh, so I said, so when you're in Florida, what kind, of, what kind of gigs do you do there? And he said, oh, I don't want to be a local artist. Hmm. And oh, my God, that, that hit me like a ton of bricks. I, wow. I don't want to be a local artist either. I know what it's like. I've been doing it for 40 years. This is brilliant. You know, and when I go off to Nashville or when I go off to England or something, I'm, you know, celebrated and revered and whatnot. Brilliant. I don't want to be a local artist. And, and then uh, I, I said, that's my new mantra. And then he told me another story about when he was starting out, he'd had this buddy who was a booking agent, you know, just a small time booking agent, booking clubs and whatnot, who had been, booking him, helping, helping him along. And then this guy got a gig with one of the really big booking agencies, one of the biggest in the States that were booking really big name acts to stadiums and arenas and whatnot. And Roy thought, oh boy, wow, I've hit it. 
I'm, this guy is, you know, my buddy. He's been with me. Now he's going to be able to get me, you know, into these better venues and better gigs and whatnot. And uh, so he called his friend, and his friend said, yeah, this is a great, great gig. But, you know, I'm really sorry, Roy, but there's no way that this agency would, would ever consider you. You know, I mean, what, what you make in 10 years, we make in 10 minutes. Uh, hmm. But let me tell you something. You... You are should be making more than you are. You're not getting as much as you're worth. And I'm going to give you five words that you should adopt. And here they are. You got to ask for it. And uh, that, again, hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh, my God. All right. That's my second mantra. So with that in mind, I wrote little Stephen an email. And I said, hi, how's it going? Uh hope all is well. Consider this my official application to be... A, I see you're playing at the New Toten Blues Festival again. Consider this my official application to be a disciple of soul. <laughs> I said, I know you got your guitar chairs covered really well, but I tickle a mean B3. And he wrote back and said, wow, really? He said, well, my B3 chair is covered very, very well, but you tickle a mean whirly and my piano chair is expendable. So if you want to come and play piano and whirly, here's the deal. It's a 15-piece blues soul band. We're going to travel around. We're going to tour for two years. And we're going to do it the old-fashioned way. We're going to win them over fan by fan. And I think that maybe if we stick with it for two years, that I might be able to realize my lifetime goal of breaking even. <laughs> And uh, he says, so if, if you're up for that, you're in. Well, I had just, I was just about to embark on a little solo tour of uh, England and Italy on my own with me and my five-string guitar. And I couldn't believe it. I said, yeah, man, you know, I'm in. He said, okay, uh, be in, you know, we'll, we'll get things set up. Mark Ribbler is the musical director. He'll send you some charts. Um, and uh, we're going to start rehearsing for this tour on April 16th. Uh, and I'll see you at the studio. Wow. So I'm, I'm three days away from leaving. And uh, the next day I get 35 charts from Mark. And uh, he says, you know, this is just, you know, the basic stuff. There'll be more to come. Uh, and... Meanwhile, my tour that I've booked extends like through April 22nd or something. And I've got, you know, plane flights booked. I've got hotels booked. I've got... <laughs> so I uh, start the process of changing all the flights and canceling the gigs and changing everything and head off to uh, England with my five-string tenor guitar and in the case pocket are 35 charts that I have to learn how to play on the piano. Okay, so my friend Ross has a, uh, a keyboard in his house, and I went over to his house while I was in England a few times and got a basic knowledge of them, sort of, and then learned the tunes on the guitar as well, just to know the form and the, you know, right. be familiar with the tunes. And uh, then when I got to Italy, I rented some, I was in Italy for a couple of weeks, I guess, and I rented, uh, found a studio, really nice guy who had a piano in his rehearsal recording studio down in the basement. And I rented time from him every morning for a couple of hours and went down there and practiced. 
and uh, then, you know, got to New York and got to the studio, and here's this fucking amazing band with all the best musicians I've ever played with in my life, and I managed to fool them. <laughs> Once again. <laughs> I wasn't kicked out. They didn't throw me out, they, you know. And poor Mark, you know, Mark Ribbler, he, he's the musical director. He's the guy who runs the band. He's the guy who decides who's going to play first trumpet and second trumpet and who's going to be the keyboard player and what all that. He, he recruits the guys. Stephen, of course, has, you know, final say right. over everything. But And he gets a call from Stephen. Hey, Mark, great news. But what? We got banana. <laughs> who, who the fuck is banana? <laughs> so he's sending 35 charts this guy who he doesn't know if he can play or what you know is he just some rock star that steven likes you know uh he's taking a big chance here but yeah fortunately i did not let him down and uh i have not been fired and i the i'm part of the most incredible fa musical family i've ever been these guys and gals and crew are a true you know every band is a family Right. But 99.9% .9 of them are dysfunctional families. Yes. Either on stage, sometimes they're they're fine off stage, everybody's good buddy. As soon as they get on stage, it all comes out. And you can see it and you can feel it. And there are these black holes everywhere on stage, sucking energy and battles going on and whatnot. Or sometimes on stage, everything's cool. And then you get off stage and, I, and nobody agrees with how life should be led or how, you know, anything. Uh and it's, there's always dysfunctionality, not in the Disciples of Soul. Wow. Any drama, any fucking bullshit weakness or, or you know, just bullshit, any kind, of, any kind of antipatico stuff, you're gone. No way. Also, if you make mistakes, you're gone. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, how long um, has it been since yeah. you were in a band situation? Like, it sounds like a few years ago you decided you would do the solo thing. So was it weird to be in a band situation well, I, and in that size of a band? No, no, because because here at home there there's some little gigs just over in Point Reyes at the Station House Bar and whatnot. And we get together with ad hoc ensembles. Sometimes, you know, none of us have ever played together before or whatnot. Right. But so that's still, it's small ensembles, but I, you know, still enjoy playing in bands. But going out on the road, no, for the for those 10 years or so i i would but no in england uh in cornwall i there's a little group little blues band that sits in with me that's really fun and in italy i've got these incredible bluegrass players and in particular one martino coppo who has become a really dear friend he plays mandolin and we go out as a duo together and play gigs in mm. italy uh so yeah I, i've kept the musical and, and then of course barry i play <laughs> I've been in Barry Melton's band for 20 years, and so we go play gigs too. And there, I, you know, I'm not, I don't have to be the front man or anything. I'm just banana, and uh, it's an all-star band. It's got Barry, me, Roy Blumenfeld from the Blues Project, and Peter Alvin from Big Brother. Uh, right. And that's really fun. But we play, And we used to play the saloon in San Francisco all the time, and that got started to get really old. We play, you know, a gig every six weeks or so, or we used to. <laughs> Maybe we will again play a gig but, every okay, so four to six weeks or something like that. And the, and there I play keyboards and guitar. Right, but when you when you wrote mm -hmm. to little Steven and said I wouldn't mind joining your band for the weekend of the festival, 
And then all of a sudden, it's turned well, into no, like no. a two-year uh, commitment. No, it wasn't for the weekend of the fe- festival. It was for I want to, you know, I want to join your band. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. It wasn't. I, I wow. didn't say just for the weekend of the festival. I said I'm, I'm applying to be a disciple. Yeah. So, yeah. so your friend's words were quite helpful. Your new yes, mantra. Yes, indeed. Yeah. You don't want to be a local artist, and you got to ask for it. And that you got to ask for it thing sure worked. And it's worked in a couple of other instances, too, where, you know, I don't... So now I don't call clubs and say, hey, what's your schedule? I'd like to play there. What you, and they say, well, how, how can you prove that you can draw up to 174 people? And are you going to pay for uh, 50 tickets? And are you blah, blah, blah. I, I don't do that. I don't call anyone and request gigs anymore uh, right. locally. If someone calls me and says, hey, man, we want you to play at our bar down in Pacifica... Uh, get a band together and come on down here and thinking, okay, you got to ask for it. I say, okay, uh, you know, 2,500 bucks. And they say, okay, or no. Simple. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Whereas you in mentioned- the old days, it would have been 400 bucks, you know? <laughs> uh, but it's, it's funny how you mentioned the word obsession a number of times throughout this interview and, and how, in, in, in all the cases you mentioned, whether it be, you know, learning the banjo or, um, or the gliding, or, I mean, in all cases, it just seems like it's your obsession has worked out for you, and 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 it's taken in you into various different paths and interesting. Journeys. Yeah, I'm glad I haven't. Yeah, I haven't been ever gotten obsessed with pyrotechnics or something. <laughs> Well, then you could have been doing one hell of a fireworks show or something. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, all my obsessions have been relatively safe. And hang gliding is quite safe as long as you approach it with safety being the foremost thing in your mind. Do you still do it? Uh, no. No, I, 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 I uh, transferred from hang gliding to sailing. And I, I had a couple of sailboats and I sailed for quite a while. Now I walk. <laughs> Well, Benan, this has been really interesting. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. Oh, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you. Um, Let me finish with one final question. When you summarize this amazing journey that you've been on, tell me what what do you think about? How do you summarize this thing? Well, I think it's been great. You know, I, I live in this amazing little town in West Marin on the shores of Tomales Bay in Northern California. And... I, uh, you know, I got married while I was still in the Young Bloods in 1965, and uh, then we moved out here to the West Coast. And after a couple of years, I found this house and got it. And I have been in this same house for 50 years. Wow! And I've raised seven kids here. And that, you know, part of the journey is certainly just as meaningful as any musical part of the journey. I've I've been very lucky. I've had I've had some loss and tragedy. The the cost of survival is loss, and one has to realize that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I I I'm I've had a, a a really nice life. I'm surrounded with beauty, and I have a my first wife passed in 2003, but I had remarried in 2013. She's incredible. Uh, my surviving kids are all incredible, and uh, and I'm hoping that uh, this bullshit, horrible war might end, or 
be abated enough to where there will always be traces of it, I'm afraid. Or I'm not afraid. I mean, we're just going to have to accept uh, some parts of this that are going to go on forever. Mm-hmm. But I hope one of the parts that will return is when I you know, go to go to Geneva and I meet my friend Martino for the first time for lunch somewhere and we haven't seen each other for 20 months, that I can hug him. Right. You know, that's maybe one of the biggest losses of this whole thing is being able to hug people. Uh, I get, I got, I get my endorphins from my cat. That's great. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, so hopefully that'll return and hopefully live music will return in some fashion. I mean, New York is such a great example, you know, and granted it costs money. So maybe, maybe ticket prices will go up, but how about, you know, Having, if you want to go to a concert, you know, you have to decide a week before and you have to get a test three days before. And then when you go in, in the lobby, you have to get a rapid test and then you go to the concert, you know, and it's spaced out seating. It's not as many people as it used to be, but that could work. Right. Right. Yeah. Interesting times. We have to get ourselves to that point, you know, and, uh. More of them will be outdoors. Attendance will be a little less. Uh, but I think, I hope, I think it'll still be possible to make a living doing what I now think I was put here to do, which is sing songs for people and make them happy. Right. Well, thank you for doing what you do, and thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. <laughs> My pleasure.